Con el episodio de hoy, damos continuación con Miami Alternativo, una serie de cinco entrevistas a artistas de diferentes disciplinas que nos comparten en una conversación amena su visión y pasión artística en una ciudad como Miami. Esta propuesta es una colaboración de Alafia Creative Entertainment y Artist Later. Antes de comenzar, queremos recordarles nuestras redes. Pueden encontrarnos en Instagram, Facebook, Twitter y YouTube como Artist Later. Buscamos reconocer individuos que transformen el arte en una forma extraordinaria de comunicar ideas, emociones y estilo de vida. Hola, soy Bert. En esta ocasión les brindamos el tercer capítulo de la serie Miami Alternativo, que ha sido posible gracias a la colaboración de personas con una visión alineada en difundir el valor del arte y la cultura en una sociedad llena de diversidad. Esta serie de entrevistas fue conducida por la doctora Eva Silva, fundadora de Alafia Creative Entertainment y es traída a ustedes por Artist Nader. to be more creative and open-minded in studying and thinking about Cuban culture as impacted by a more globalized world since the turn of the century. Miami Alternativo is a podcast series proposed by Dr. Eva Silot Bravo from Alafia Creative Entertainment to Artist Nader, based on her doctoral dissertation published by the University of Miami since August 2016. In her research and publications, Dr. Eva Silot Bravo encourage a critical multidisciplinary scholarly conversation about a sustained process of transnationalization of Cuban cultural production, in particular since the turn of the 21st century. Buenas tardes. Eh, tenemos el placer en la serie de hoy, el capítulo de hoy, de tener con nosotros al productor, DJ, músico, Andrew. Andrew, yo no sé cómo pronunciar tu último tu apellido. Uh, Andrew Yeomanson. Yeomanson. Sí. Ok, yo sí. was wondering. Entonces, esta es la serie Miami Alternativo, una colaboración de Alafia Creative Entertainment y eh, Artist Nader. Y estamos en el capítulo de Andrew, DJ Spamble Stars. Uh, hi, Andrew. It's hi. a pleasure yeah, to... Welcome. The, yeah, thank you so much for, you know, accepting our invitation. So, you know, this is a conversation I would like um, some people to know about you because I know a lot of people know you, but a lot of people don't. So, and I'm also thinking about, you know, people all over the, the world, right? Cuba, Latin America. I know some people know you there, but still. So tell me about you. I know you're Canadian. I know you live in Miami, but how does it, what happened? Like why <laughs> you are here? <laughs> uh, well, my parents, my father's English. And my, my mother's Venezuelan. Uh, one of her parents was American. Her mother was, uh, Venezuelan. She was, uh, born and raised in Venezuela and Haiti. Um, they lived all over Latin America. My parents met in Venezuela. That's where they got married. Uh, then they lived in Ecuador. But, you know, things didn't happening in their lives. They were in Canada when, uh, for 10 years, my father had a business in the late sixties to mid seventies. Uh, selling, he was importing things from South America, artesanía, actually like the, the, almost like the dress you have, uh, things like that. He had all those kind of tunics and wow. stuff from Mexico, Central America. He was traveling and, uh, his store was called the Inca Poncho. And mm. that was how they lived from when we were born until like about 1977. And my father sold his business. Uh, we moved back to England for a couple of years and then. And nothing much going on. It was like a bad economic time for England in the late 1970s. And uh, we ended up coming to Florida in 1980. 
And in 1980, right around that time, we uh, moved to Colombia. Uh, we, my father was working for a bank here, and uh, we lived in Colombia from uh, 1980 to 1983. Then we moved back to Florida for about a year. And that time I was in 10th grade. And uh, after that year, we moved uh, back to England. Wow. <laughs> for That was the middle 80s, so it was a great time to be in England then. And um, then it was uh, my last two years of high school. Mm. High school was really cool. I could leave the campus when I didn't have a class. And so I was going record hunting all over. I went from being into heavy metal to being into like Jamaican music and dub and mm. dancehall music. And so for me, I was just eating it up and having all kinds of musical experiences and like just soaking up everything that London was in the 1980s. I could see any band that I wanted to see that I was interested in would play there. I would sneak out. I would lie. I would do whatever I had to do to, to do the things I wanted to do in London. And, uh, and I did. I had a great time. It was three years. And then, uh, when I back, I went to Canada when I was 19 again to go to university. So I was in Toronto for like two years, like 88, 89. And then eh, university wasn't very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. I was still into record collecting. What, was was, your, what were you studying at the time? Uh, I wanted to, you know, so I was doing anthropology, sociology. It was like liberal arts, but really I wanted to do African studies, you okay. know. And But once I was there, I just realized that mm. it was not where I wanted to be. You yeah. know, I didn't know what it was about it, but for, yeah. for, 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 there was a couple of years there where I didn't have... I hadn't found my path. I was still into mm. hardcore, into music, no matter what. That's, I just didn't really recognize uh, the possibility of a musical career for myself. So I was just kind of just following music and doing whatever. I was buying records like crazy. I wasn't creating, but I was like, music was everything. And so then uh, I also became a bicycle courier at that time. So when mm. I was living in Toronto, I was like, you know, so I got really fit and I was into cycling and, uh, and I had the idea to do this like bike tour. So I went and I took my bike like from Holland to Spain and, and, uh, then I stayed in London for a little while. And that's when I came to Miami in 1990. Like after I did all that stuff, then I came here. Uh, How was that Miami of the 90s for you? It was great. So I have my aunt who I'm very close with. And she's lived here since the 70s. And so mm. when I moved here, I went and she lives out by Fountain Blue. So she okay. has like, you know, I lived in the utility closet of her apartment for like one year. I just had like a bed I would roll out. And I had uh, I had decided when I moved here, I was like, okay, I'm going to try for 10 years to do music. Like I'll do 10 years. I'm 20 now. And I'll do from when I'm 20 to when I'm 30, I'm going to do music. And if nothing happens from that... I could just I'll still be 30. I could still go get mm -hmm. a normal job or start a career, <laughs> go back to school or, you know. And so uh, Miami was super interesting. So then I, I, I got my guitar out of storage. I set up my turntable. I had a bicycle only. Uh, I got a job at TGI Fridays at International Mall. And, um, and then I started riding my bike to all the record stores that I could. And I started like getting records. And then I was studying the records and learning what I was hearing from the records on the guitar. And, um, around that time, I got these records that were my grandparents' records too. They were from when they lived in Haiti and they had records that were, uh, like voodoo music and they had like early compa music, you know, like early Haitian big bands and stuff because they lived there in the fifties. So that was super interesting. And, uh, that was the only thing, like I had experienced other kinds of Latin music when I lived in, uh, Colombia, but I didn't really, Haitian culture was super interesting to me. So then I started kind of like delving into that. And then plus one of the guys that worked at TJI Fridays, was an older dude that played guitar. And so when he found out that I was playing guitar, he was like, oh, you know, so I wanted to jam. And so then I started with this guy who was like, you know, he was like already drinking too much. and <laughs> But he was an incredible guitarist, you know. It's like, so then I started running around with him and he had another friend and we would play up around here in North Miami. It would just be like three guitars. But I got more and more interested in like that style. And then from listening to the voodoo music, I started getting interested in like, why isn't there like voodoo music mixing with like the other, you know, why is it so separate, mm. you know? And so, uh, 
I walked into a place on South Beach one day and it was like a club that existed at that time um, called the Stephen Talk House. It was like a kind of like a legendary live music club that existed for a few years. And uh, there was this band on stage and they were with the voodoo drums, but they were with guitar and nice. bass and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, this is just the type of band that I was I've been imagining. And it was Jean Sebon was one of the people in that band. The band was called, uh, which is Inez Parlatier's father. Um, and, uh, the band was called Collection Kazakh. And so I'm watching these guys. I'm like, shit, this is great. This is like t- just the type of band I want to be. And, and so I'm just standing there. And, and so there's like three guys sending this to me. And we're just like, and, and they're like, oh, you know, so what, you're a musician, you're the Haitian guys. And they're like, oh, yeah. And they're just like, what do you play? I said, go guitar. So I will give, give you a number. So like two weeks later, these guys call me for a gig and then I'm playing with them, you know. And so there was a band called Lavalas Band and they were just like a really intense, like it was like political because it was Lavalas was the Aristide movement, you mm. know, in that time. So right before, right at that time, Rose Cedras was the like uh, military dictator of Haiti. Aristide hadn't gone to power yet. So Lavalas was like the Aristide movement. Mm. And they kind of doomed their band by being so political in a sense, because even in Miami, mm. there's a lot of like factions. And then you add like the voodoo stuff into that. It's like, <laughs> so, but it was for me, it was like, wow, this, you know, it's like 22. I was going to these like, I was being, I got to be a part of a, see a part of a world that like a lot of people mm. wouldn't get to see. And, right. um, so it was incredible. And the drumming, forget it. You know, like I've never experienced drumming on that. Le- I mean, I've been to like, I've had, I've been to, you know, Santeria stuff and this and that. And I've been around drumming my whole life at this point. But the drumming, the, that, the, the voodoo drumming of Haiti mm. is on another level. And so, uh, Communicates, right? Huh? It communicates. Ah, it just goes straight through you. And some people, then they get, that's when they get a spirit, you know? So I really, uh, you know, that was just amazing, but it was also very unstable. And, Hmm. you know, I was just kind of, I put so much of my energy into this thing and then Hmm. one guy quit and then the whole thing fell apart and it was very, you know, so, so I was sort of heartbroken and, uh, but I had found this little place that was, a little recording studio and I had, cause I was the one that was always like wanting to rehearse the band. I was mm. like, come on guys, we gotta like, you know, I want, cause rehearse. I needed to practice and I wanted to everybody practice and I just like playing. So I was always pushing the rehearsals. And so I found this little place by the airport, 57th Avenue, right off uh, 836. And there's like a jet ski Yamaha dealership and there used to be a recording studio. It was like a hole in the wall place. And it had just a little eight track tape machine and it was perfect for me. The guys were really nice. They would like, they were totally not judging what I was doing. I was just experimenting. And, uh, so I would, then I started going to record my own stuff. So that was like, at that point, what happened was I put so much energy into this project. It wasn't really, I didn't own it. It wasn't my culture. It wasn't my thing. Mm-hmm. I was part of it. It was amazing, but like, I just kind of decided, okay, well, I always have to have something that I'll be putting energy into that I could at least call my own whatever if I'm a part of somebody else's stuff too so that's kind of when the band started really like 93 94 mm-hmm. because the first or second thing that I recorded in that studio was like a song that had a piece of a commercial for the spam meat oh, and I made a song with a I was Montuno. wondering well, why is yeah, yeah everybody asked the question so I'll tell you right now <laughs> you don't even have to ask so there was a like a montuno like a tres part and i made a little loop with that and then and then i had this commercial which was like really cheesy with the voice <laughs> what do you think you're eating what's in the quiche and so i thought it was hilarious you know i just made it as something i was not being serious you know my way yeah. of doing my music and it was like having no expectations and not being that serious about it and really? so it was the first thing and i thought it was funny that i played for my friends and then I just started calling it Spam All Stars. And that was kind of how it rolled along. And then because of the Haitian band, I met Neil Lada and he, I started playing in his group at that time. I was mm. playing guitar for him and the gig with him lasted like three years touring and recording. Cool. And that kind of ended around 1998. And that's when I really kind of like reactivated Spam All Stars as being like, okay, I'm going to have a gig every week. I'm going to try to 
And I don't know, you know, that's, yeah. that was, and, and I also sort of was more thinking of, I could work as a DJ. Mm-hmm. You know? How was that? How was like this transition? Cause you are one of these few musicians that could do DJing and at the same time, you know, you have a band together, which now is normal. Everybody does it. I mean, in other places for him in Miami, I don't know, with the quality that you do your stuff, I don't see many people doing it. So well, how was that? I, I, I mean, When I perform with the group, I see it as a completely, it's, it's, it's almost, I wouldn't even call it DJing. I'm mm. playing machines. Yeah. So I was just thinking in terms of at that time, well, I'm collecting vinyl. The vinyl thing is kind of falling off. Most guys are doing now CDs at that time. Uh, I was also doing music. Yeah. I was also doing old school music. So I looked around at the scene. I looked at there was like nobody really doing that. Mm -hmm. I thought I have this huge record collection. I'm buying records everywhere all the time for nothing. I'm into it. I had a little pirate radio show. I was like, let me see if I can carve a little niche for myself as a vinyl DJ and start with that. And then at the same time, but the band stuff was overlapping because I was sampling from the records that I was getting. I was mm. like having ideas. The radio show was kind of part of that because I had this pirate radio show these friends of mine had like an illegal station on the beach <laughs> and so i had it was like a dream come true what i always wanted to have a fantasize right. of a, and i used radio. to listen to pirate radio in london mm. and these guys would come on late at night and they'd play all this crazy stuff nice. so i was playing the records that i was finding in the street and then i was part of my show would be that i would have to make a beat a new beat a new just arrangement an idea something a jump off and we would play live for like 20, 30 minutes at a time. And then I would DJ and then we play live. It'd be very free form and loose. And there would be spoken word records, totally weird stuff. And so from that, the whole thing was kind of blending. And that's how, so the, a lot of the early shows were like that. I would be DJing and playing, you know, the old Cuban records or the salsa or the funk. Mm -hmm. And then the band would start playing, we would play and then, I was just working myself to death, basically. That's why I'm, <laughs> I'm deaf. I wouldn't even take a break. So I would start, I would DJ, then we would play, then I would DJ, then we would play, wow. then I would DJ. So it was all became, you know. One thing, right? Yeah, you know. Tell me about the Faka Danais. Uh, I know that was an important, you know, part of the the career of the band. Well, right? that's, how, that's how most people, that was really where everything clicked for us. So... That was about after three years of, of like doing different nights, mostly starting on the, on South Beach. So we had a few different things. We had like this hip hop night with Snow White. Then we had a, yeah, you know, we had a, a few things where we were bouncing around. And then we ended up, uh, Eric Fabregat and Ralph de la Portilla, uh, two actor friends of mine came over to me. I had known these guys already for, you know, a very long time. And they said, no, we saw, we went into this place, Oiko Moyer. There's not much going on. Uh, we said to the owners, yeah, we have this band. They're like doing this and this. We were already messing around a little bit with like, but it wasn't as we didn't have the full time mm. with Tomas Diaz. It was mm. like there was usually our previous thing was usually like a trio of guitar, sax and my beats. Mm. And then Eric and Ralph said, well, we want to do it. But we want to have, uh, can we have Tomas? And can we do it with, uh, you know, can you do it more in Spanish? You know, I was messing with the Spanish records, you know, like on our first record, there's, there's like a mm. Fidel impersonator and, <laughs> yeah. and this, and, but, but it was like, it was, I was all over the map. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I've kind of stayed all over the map, but this is like, we themed it in a certain way and mm. everybody loved it. And so that thing rolled into, um, well, we just after, a month it was full and then we we ran it i think we did it oikomoya for like almost two years solid and it was just got too crazy and things were getting like a little out of hand for some people you know and i got a little upset mm. uh, it was just you know so we then we moved uh you know for like a couple of years we moved to downtown uh there was a couple io so we did our night there for two years and um It was good, but it, w it was hard to, people didn't, it was like mm. the neighborhood, everything, mm. you know, like when a venue fits, 
And we, so we went back then from like 2005 to maybe almost 2017 or mm. 2016. Yeah. You know, but I, things change, you know? So, right? so like the whole thing evolved from being this thing that it became from, so it was, it was like this new thing that everybody had to check out and like everybody and anybody went through that club at one time. I mean, it was yeah. like crazy. And then, and then it just kind of like, it started to feel like I started to get sad because, you know, it got to be very expensive for people to go. And yeah. then I would hear my friends tell me, oh, you know, mm. whatever. Like Miami's yeah. very expensive to go out now. Absolutely. And it's crazy. It doesn't so, matter the neighborhood. <laughs> well, you do, you know what? The, it, it does in a way because if you go to, if, if you're creative and you follow yeah. a scene, then, then there's always going to be people that are pushing to like do things in a new way and and you know when we run out of that then you know it'll really be time to like you know move but but like you know i think as long as there's young people that like are working within a really small budget they're going to be forced to do and they're going to work with like little places and yeah. they're going to bring their stuff and it's going to yeah it's still going to be alive not everything could be gentrified in the same way right places are you know to it, be it takes a while they, they they you know they're always they're always they're never too far behind those people mm -hmm. but it's still to be part of that first wave is is exciting but once that you know it's okay so so whatever you know we ran it and ran it and ran it and finally it was time to like just stop you know one of the things, I, I had the opportunity, I, at that time it was not called Fagata, but I had the opportunity to go to some nights, some Thursdays at Noikomaye, and I loved it. I was like, you know, it blew my mind. Because first, the quality of what I heard there, I've never heard any quality, sound quality like that in Miami. You know, that's a, used to be a problem. I don't know if it is still, but <laughs> like music, it is. Yeah, 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 it's yeah, kind yeah. of like that. You don't listen to good quality sound <laughs> frequently. And the other thing that really blew my mind was that I was coming from New York at the time, so look, the audience was incredible. I've never seen an audience like that, especially uh, those who were doing like a break dance uh -huh. kind of circle. Yeah, yeah. Right? Really how do you, how, how, what do you think makes it so special? Like you attract your music, attracts this kind of, I would say, idea audience, mix, diverse people from different generations, different cultures. Oh, look at this, who's on stage, it's the same. So, so, you know, I mean, I think like to a large extent, you know, you know, the good band kind of reflects its audience somewhat, you know, we're all a bit older now, but hmm. you know, that's, it's a diverse group of people on stage. And so it's a diverse audience. And, uh, um, that's been amazing to have that as when, really when you have like, you know, we did uh, we did a break dance. That, I guess that was our last gig in in August. Was the break dancing festival, the beginning of the the Flipside Kings anniversary party at Miami Light Project. So, whenever you have like that big break dancing crowd, it's a whole different energy. You oh know? my god! So when you have like people that are dancing like that, it, it, it's it's great. But also, you don't only do break dance. Like the thing that I really also I love is that it's one of these few places where you can see or experience what I what people call my the Miami sound and why the Miami sound well in my case I think I identify it as the Miami sound because it's informal it's mixed it has the electronic vibe that a lot of people like Miami but it also has a lot of other influences and they are very well crafted all together so you cannot say that this is a particular uh, genre as in the traditional sense of how the industry call it, right? And and that leads me to the question about your relationship of no, I mean with the industry. <laughs> <laughs> we need to talk about yeah, this, I'm you know, alive. especially Look in I'm Miami. You are around. alive and that's a thing. Yeah. Because you know, we you know, we all have our ideas about what the industry the industry, music industry is in Miami or the lack of it when it comes to music like for this kind of music, right? right. So how how was it? How was this how, I've been one hundred percent independent all the time so how do they label you where have you fit or not fit I can only say that even way back from like day one when I decided to call my project spam all-stars I basically decided for myself at that time mm -hmm. that it was going to be always something that I would have to own because of the name itself 
nobody would be able to get their arms. I was like, nobody would ever want to sign a band called Spam All Stars. Why? I thought because it's 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 there was no such thing mm. as a internet spam. There was nothing except okay. like, oh yeah, it's this meat product. Mm -hmm. So I thought <laughs> it would be so absurd that it wouldn't be, you know. So to me, it was never something that I wanted to participate in, mm. in terms of, yeah. you know, like, hey, I'm looking for a record deal. Mm. Uh, there was a moment, you know, like when I was playing with Nil, where I would like give my tapes to like some of the people from the label. Mm. But that was just, you know, yeah, like, hey, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> like, I was not expecting anything. And uh, I think later on, when, when there was actually a little bit of interest, I just was like, my whole thing was that I felt that we would get lost in inside of a, mm. a corporation type of environment. And I, yep. I felt that knowing my own personality, I would probably not mm. really respond well to that. And so um, I kind of just like didn't get into that idea very much at all. And then in the end, you know, we were kind of lucky in that we jumped, or we started to do well right at the, like, kind of like the height of the CD era. Mm -hmm. So our, like, from our first two CDs, we didn't really sell very many. But then, like, our second, third, and fourth CDs, I mean, I sold a lot because we were gigging a lot. And then CDs cost, you know, like, I don't know, a dollar to two dollars, you know, to produce. And, and, and I would always sell for ten, mm. but I sold thousands and I sold them myself. And then like everybody that was in the band that, you know, everybody participated. So everybody, you know, was able to, you know, get extra money because of that. And I think, you know, that, so that worked out great for us. I don't think it would have worked out uh, the same way if we were with a label, those, those type of situations are seldom. So, but now everything's different, you know, like we're now in a situation where um, well, when I'm not like gigging like four nights a week to, uh, nobody buys CDs anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, the last project I did, I pressed vinyl because I, I, I've been pressing vinyl for years, but, um, I press vinyl because it feels like that's just about the only thing that's worth making if you're going to make a product. But our, it feels like our audience hasn't really caught up with the vinyl resurgence craze. So we have, we have, I'm, and also I'm a terrible salesman. I don't really, I don't even set up a table. Like I'll barely even, like I'll be like, uh, yeah, not another CD for sale. Uh, but so, you know, I haven't been selling as much, but we did, I think we did probably much better, just us in our little, thing that we did i think we did better uh, than had we gone you know so i think we've like kind of you know i've 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 done what i feel comfortable with you know i i kind of i don't think i would have been you know i got to experience like the whole label thing being with nil i kind of got to see like how that we did every it was intimate like how that we, you know we were he went from like being this artist that was just signed that's right about just when i started playing with him and then you know they a and r you when you're in the studio and then once your record's done and they're really into like oh this is a particular song this is the one we want and we're gonna make a video and and so you're you're compromising your vision you know a lot of times yeah, you get to work with great people who can see things a different way and it's like really wonderful. But then sometimes it's really comes down to, you know, it's crazy because you think that, you know, when you're, when you're on a label, it's everybody's job to make everything, everything should be equally important if it's mm -hmm. on a label, but it's really, they like play favorites. So it's like, mm -hmm. oh, this is the artist we're pushing and then it's this one we have it, but we're, you know, da, da, da. that's they total be, crap. Yeah. So then you have all this stuff that happens within a label mm -hmm. where artists are like basically kissing ass within a label mm -hmm. or doing things, you know, in order to like advance just so that the label will put more um, resources into their career. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was nothing I ever really wanted to you know after and and he did he was he had it great i mean he had wonderful wonderful people that really 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 you know he had the best of the best people behind him mm. so so nothing to nothing bad to say about the whole thing but i could see um from from having that experience what what that 
what was going on with it all. And I, you know, even before that, I was very cynical. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, it's, it's, it's been okay. So tell me, um, I also think you have a special relationship with Cuban music from old times. I see you as a person who has a particular, have curated Cuban music in a really particular way. And uh, I know that there are, you know, some people who, you know, have this pure concept of the music, whatever. But I, what I like about the music you do is, uh, you know, all this influence that you have. And I'm thinking about Afro-Cuban music, but in the bigger, you know, picture from like the times of, you know, the when jazz, Afro-Cuban jazz was a thing and Latin jazz in the 40s in New York until recently. And also African music, you don't stop there in the influence of Cuba, but also you go even to you know, beyond. So tell me a little bit about what does it represent for you? And what's your relationship with Cuban music? Like Maybe people know about you in Cuba. What do you <laughs> know about Tell that. me in the music no, scene. I, so, so really when I got here, it's about this, you know, I, the first artist that I got really interested in, Benny More, because I found uh, the same records of my grandparents. She had some 45s, my grandmother, Benny More and Perez Prado, the Mambos. So I heard the Mambos. I was like, I instantly liked that. And then, um, I got into Arsenio Rodriguez, like hardcore, because I was just soaking up anything I could for guitar. And then I was like, where's the guitar in Latin music? Where's the guitar in Latin mm. music? And then when I found Arsenio, then, um, I was like, oh, you know, this is, this, I'm really super into this. And so I have found a guy that had a record store in downtown Miami. His name is Carlos Suarez. And Carlos Suarez oh, yes. had a store at that time called Flippers. And so when I went into Flippers and started talking to Carlos, Carlos said, no, that's a tres. And I said, wow, okay, I got to get a tres. How can I get it? What's a tres? Like, where, how do you tune a tres? What is it? Mm. It wasn't like you could Google that stuff. No. So I was like on a quest. <laughs> And uh, so that was also kind of connected me with Nil because Nil's a thrust player, mm. although his thrust is like a baritone. It's it's still that setup. Yeah. And so uh, I ended up like working for Carlos at the store. That was oh. my I was waiting table still, but I was um, I started working for Carlos at Flippers, and then Carlos was like the best educator of Cuban music that I could have because he had like all the old stuff. So I was getting Cachao, Arsenio, Benny More. Uh, some of the funnier stuff, you know, Machito. Mm. Then he was also into Los Bamban, Danding, all the stuff that was new from Cuba. Like he was pushing, and he was, and he was telling me more information than I could even absorb, but it, of course, it was repeating all the time. So, like, little by little, from Carlos and working with him, you know, that was it. That guy was my mentor. Not only that, by the time I was really hardcore into, because Carlos bailed out of that store, like, in the early 90s, like, and then resurfaced on Lincoln Road at this place called Esperanto Music. Mm-hmm. And so when he, that was like right about the time the nil thing fell apart mm-hmm. for me. And then I, he was, you know, I started part-timing with him on at Esperanto. And he was also into buying up record collections and then he would liquidate. So he would get just huge, incredible things. And then he would get the best pieces that he could get like a couple hundred bucks for. And then he would just sell the rest like two for five dollars or three for ten. And so like of I mean like all basically one of the best ever things that he got. And this is just crazy. But he after Mongo Santa Maria passed away, then Carlos was like knew his daughter. And so Carlos got the rest of Mongo's records, whatever oh, wow. they were. There was maybe three or four things that he sold out of the rest I got. So the things that I got from from Mongo, which was fascinating, uh, was like, first of all, he had a lot of just dedications from other musicians. Mm. So like I have one that's from Carlos Embale to Mongo Santa Maria. Incredible. And then and then on top of that, it's like Mongo's own copies of the records he played on with Cal Jader. And um, there's but then even more, you see what was feeding his head. So he had like the Yoruba drumming from Nigeria and like the things that there was a record store in uh the Bronx, and later they moved to Brooklyn, it's called the African Music Center. And the guy, he started this label called the Makosa label. But the guy was like, you know, he was bringing and reissuing and selling African records in New York City. And so I guess Mongo would go there and buy like Nigerian records. And like, that was what he was into. And then I had all these 45s that he wrote his own name on the 45, I guess, you know, 
he went to La Lupe's house and he's there and he's jamming at the end. He's gonna take his records <laughs> home. So that was just you know. So well, having a person too, like that. Know? When I listen yeah, yeah, to I'm always digging. Ochimini, I'm crawling through the streets. Know? I'm crawling through the well. The, but so a song like Ochimini is a song like that is coming from a guy like Tomas Tomas Diaz. Mm. And then and then the baseline from that song was inspired by uh, Irakere. Uh, there's a song called Check It A Song. And so, like, there's a riff on that song that inspired the bass line for Ochimini. We were already playing it. I mean, we're there's always, like, a funk kind of backbeat in our stuff. So that's kind of, like, the oh. given. And then we had that bass line idea. And we were somewhere in a room, like, working on that record. And Tomas came in with the refrain. And then that's how that song was. But I wouldn't do... Uh, an Afro-Cuban song without a guy like Tomas or Lazaro Afonso, because it's not authentic. Then you know, well, it's amazing. So, so, so all of those things that happen to do with as far as spam all stars playing Afro-Cuban stuff, it's because of a of Tomas or Lazaro or somebody that's bringing that. Because I don't bring that. You mm -hmm. know, I can feel it, and I can like you know like somehow like envelop it into what we're doing but that is not you know that's not my culture so for tomas he's that's what he brings you know and, and 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 we didn't have vocals before then you know he picked up the mic and it was like the first thing he sang was uh was a canto nice. you know so let's do a little pause te encuentras escuchando el tercer episodio de la serie miami alternativo vamos a ir a una pausa y enseguida regresamos The profound economic crisis that took place in Cuba in the 90s, spread by the demise of the Soviet Union and the Eastern European Socialist Bloc, led to the most significant exodus to the U.S., Europe, and Latin America of Cuban artists born and raised after the revolution. Living abroad, these artists formed a transnational network of regular collaborations that in some cases include the island. These artists have formed new transnational and alternative narrative spaces across international borders in cities like Miami, New York, Madrid, Barcelona, Mexico, among other countries, where there has been a sustained process of negotiation and the construction of the centrality of the Cuban nation and the Cuban subject in cultural imaginaries based on their international experiences. Y ahora regresamos de la pausa. Te encuentras escuchando el tercer episodio de Miami Alternativo, una colaboración de Alafia, Creative Entertainment y Artist Nader. Andrew, how have you managed to have such an incredible lineup of musicians? You have collaborated with, for me, with the best of the best musicians, local musicians that are here, international too. Let's say Aaron Levos, let's say Chad Bernstein, Mercedes Zaval, eh, Tomás, eh, José Elías, eh, John Speck, so many. I mean, it's, you know, the list is amazing, right? It goes on and on. Tell me about them. Because it, you, you don't find the quality of musicianship every day on live music shows. Well, I feel like very fortunate that most of those relationships evolved in a very organic almost natural happenstance kind of way but i've also you know with every single show that we've ever done since almost the beginning i've made sure that everybody gets paid for what they do so i think that i'm not i have no idea how other people conduct their business but i do think it was just kind of like important to me from like day one That, you know, and I mean, I'm saying before we started playing it like we're talking about like I was maybe getting 150 bucks from a club. So but that would still go to like, okay, we all got 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. So when things started getting better, at least, you know, there was no matter what, not that that's it all comes down to money. But I think if you want to have professional musicians, you got to make sure everybody gets paid because they're professional musicians. Absolutely. And so I. I kind of always had that in my mind and I just feel really lucky that for whatever reason they thought whatever we were doing was interesting enough that they would want to contribute their ideas and so all of the music that we've done 
Um, there is, are very few pieces of music that I could point at and say, well, that's mostly me. Maybe, you know, I don't know, 10%. And so every single thing that we've done is everybody's energy, everybody's best ideas, everybody's, um, you know, and I think that also, um, has something to do with it because when you're collaborating with, I don't know, it doesn't have to be musicians, but any other artists, when you give the artist a creative stake in what you're doing, then they actually care about it. And so then you're growing something together. And if they also benefit on the back end of it economically as well, then, then you're all working towards something and you have something that's, you know, um, maybe viable. (laughs) But I really do feel like it was, you know, it has a lot to do with just everybody being, you know, in a, in a, in a scene at a time and, and having, being able to, you know, there's, there's way more people than, than that who have gotten on stage and played with us. Mm -hmm. And sometimes technically they might be like a better, not better, but, you know, technically more proficient, but for whatever reason, it wasn't, you know, just, it was not really, it just didn't feel. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a lot of it has to do with the ability for people to have intuition, um, it's things that are intangibles, honestly, you well, know, you with, have to with work bands. Collectively, too, because some people. Well, you have to listen. A good band is at some point, if you have to kind of have play with like a single mind. So if, if everybody's, and it's harder and harder, I think, for musicians because it's so distracting, you know. So everybody's kind of like, hmm. uh, you know, to keep people in the moment of playing and to really have everything just like only be inside of what you're doing together it it almost is impossible in a in a sort of live music situation mm-hmm. to expect that you know but when it does happen it's such an incredible thing i i feel like you know very lucky to have experienced that as for as many times as i have in my life that's a combination of people you know what i mean that that is something that is uh so unpredictable and it's fragile. It could be ruined in a second, you know, but, but yeah, it comes down to, you know, uh, giving people respect, mm-hmm. uh, giving people a voice within a project, uh, paying people for what, trying to pay people for what they're worth. Make it serious. Um, it's all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't think it's that hard. Uh, I think Miami has like, you know, just so much talent. There's just so much going on here. There's so many people coming all the time. Uh, there's people that are born and raised here that are just absolutely amazing. So, and I see it here now and I'm recording more and I'm, I'm mostly my life is, is recording the bands of the scene that, that, that people that are, are doing things, you know, that are out playing live like all the time now. So I'm, I'm very lucky that I get to kind of like have a, ground floor view of of sometimes i'm making people's very first recording now you know it's great i know that there's just still you know and there's people i could definitely say i would handpick if i wanted to do like a recording situation you know i there i could kind of like you know pick and choose now and and i feel so lucky you know um so I, I guess I kind of when I'm when I'm re- doing stuff now, you know, because I still sometimes I get shorthanded, you know. Some so sometimes still I'll still be down to musicians uh, for a gig, so I I still always kind of like have my ear open for people that are doing interesting things or or getting a sound that 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 you know a really good sound on guitar or somebody's like really cool on keyboards and or or whatever, you know. I'm just yeah. like always kind of like paying attention to to that and. Oh, the thing I wanted to ask you is about the Caribbean and Miami, because you're here in Miami, but at the same time, for me, you have all this African-related influence, but you don't see, you don't hear a lot of conversation about how Caribbean Miami is, if it is at all, if we can say that Miami is part of the Caribbean or not. I would say yes, but I would say this is something to be yet to be highlighted in a way. Why? Because of the combination of influence. You know, the Caribbean, any Caribbean culture is a combination of not only two, but a lot of different influences, right? And But with that African diaspora base there somewhere, always. And I would venture to say that your music, I kind of feel that is one of the 
things that made Miami more Caribbean, right? This taste of, you know, combination where of musics where Africa is there in an important way, not only by the African uh, explicit music, but also by the other influence that has also, you know, African influence in the way, you know, in the rhythm, in the music. So I don't know. I would like to know your thoughts about it. Well, First of all, I think Miami is part of the Caribbean. When I look at, you know, I think my, I was just having a conversation with someone before you guys got here about how Caribbean this neighborhood is. Um, we have a little bit of everybody here. It's very Haitian, but it's also a lot of Trinidadian and a lot of Jamaican. So thinking about all of that, there's aside from like the African influence, I can say that two really really big parts of our music that is very caribbean mm -hmm. is it's sound system based music like our music from the get-go like once i started with the beats uh i started building a sound system basically so that's why when you would see a Mayer, it would sound different than what other people play Mayer, even because i was bringing in a lot of extra sound mm. so i was bringing in extra subs i was bringing in extra speakers mm. um the idea of our music is it's 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 very also influenced by Jamaican dub music. So it's an improvised mix happening on a recording desk feeding a, a wall of speakers. That's like the, the whole concept. And so you could move us from a little place like Oikumoyet or put us on a big stage with a giant wall of speakers. And it translates because the concept is that it's sound system dub music but it's happening with other rhythms. We're doing it with dance music rhythms or Cuban rhythms or funk over that. But like the, the, like conceptually to me, I've always been in to the dub. So that's why you hear a lot of echo and delay and the effects and the things like that. So I think that might be actually the biggest, at least for myself personally, like that's the biggest influence of the caribbean on that what we do is 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 like the sound system based music of trinidad and jamaica where it's like all about having a huge truck of sound and and like just building a wall of speakers and then just you know mm -hmm. all that bass that is something and then miami bass itself like so miami's own music of the 90s was like this bass music that people were creating that was all around an 808 drum machine mm. that is a big part of our music too so that's personally what i bring into it is my drum machines um the bass lines that i create which would you could really say that they're you know coming a lot from dub dub music is basically baseline music mm. you know like it's music that's just the drums with the baseline mm -hmm. the baseline's holding the melody and so really kind of melodic baselines was something that that was it's like that's it all comes from a baseline most of our our music that's mm -hmm. it would start there and that will give the other guys the baseline then they build on top mm -hmm. so that's all Jamaica you know, really like it goes back to the music that I was listening to in high school mm. when I first heard dub music, like it blew my head open. Mm. And then after that, I was never the same. And I was just <laughs> going for that for a while, you know, and then I still go for it when I produce. Now it's like, I kind of like got all those tools for my studio because I wanted to use those tools. I kind of have like a low budget version that I use when we play live. I have like, I do it with guitar pedals, but here I have like tape echo and all that stuff. And, and, you know, that's it just that's what fascinates me you mm. know so that's what i see okay and um, what about funk because nowadays you see that there's kind of a coming back mm -hmm. to funk based kind of music like there's a recognition i'd say or people are coming back to it but i would say in places like cuba for example as far as i can recall and i would say miami listening to your music and other people as well other local bands that funk was always there yeah it would never you know uh I mean, left. But uh, how do you see that? Because I'm very happy because what is going on with funk, because funk is such an instrumental part, not only of dancing music, but also what we're talking about, Caribbean, Cuban music, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's been there. So tell me about it. Like, what are you Well, thoughts? Miami is also a very funky place. So, so Miami's always, always had, you know, this heavy um, Black American music happening deep baseline music also and uh because of certain entrepreneurs that were here 
starting in the 50s even, the music was getting recorded and it was reaching sometimes the mainstream of the United States. Hmm. Uh, this lured people like James Brown to Miami. Uh, he was recording here regularly starting in the late 60s. Also, people like Aretha Franklin recording down here regularly. Miami had a sound and a vibe and a thing that like other southern cities didn't have. Mm -hmm. I mean, Memphis had a thing. Miami had a thing. And uh, so Miami, as we got into the middle of the 70s, though, uh, sort of the, the funk kind of got erased by disco music so disco became the thing mm -hmm. um starting from when casey and the sunshine band became <laughs> popular when they became popular they were so successful that everything else on that label sort of just got sidelined mm. and they became you know that became the template for like this is the music that we're creating here is for on the floor dance music okay. but that really is what the beginning of, of electronic dance music and everything else it all comes from disco music you know the first kind of drum machines started coming into disco music by the end of you know there's like kind of like a backlash everybody was like okay you know they got they got tired of formula music by the end of the 1970s but that kind of led into the era of drum machine music which started almost immediately after which became electro funk and then miami bass and later house music you know, kind of it split off. So electrofunk started, house music also started. House music had four on the floor. Electrofunk was kind of more funk-based rhythms, you know. But it's kind of like the drum machines took over from the natural drummers after a while. But um, Miami's kind of like the dance music. It's it's a birthplace for electronic dance music, for sure, you know. Um, and uh, I think, like, Greedier funk is always going to be, there's, people are always going to be looking for like, you know, the older style of funk playing and, and, you know, that like classic, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, James Brown sound. Why do you think it's so powerful? It's certain rhythms. I think certain rhythms are rhythms that for whatever reason we respond to. Right. So, um, it's a frequency you know, a lot of them are African rhythms and a lot of them are, you know, even like, that's what I'm saying. Four on the floor music, that's caveman music. Wherever you like kind of see humans hanging out, you're probably going to like <laughs> at the most basic level, there'll be some kind of like, Based on yeah, or just, ba you know, uh, four on the floor music. So, uh, I, I think that's kind of why I think, I think, um, you know, it's very primal. It's raw. Um, Gets into you know, it, right? but on top of that, you can build anything. So then right. you could have something as complicated as, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire or something mm -hmm. as raw as, you know, the rawest funk record you ever heard by people that can barely play. You know, it's like they both work because it's it's, you know, it's a beat and it's something people can dance to. So two last questions. First, I would like you to tell me something about this incredible collection of music that I see we have here, where it's around the <laughs> Well, that's what we've been This is like about. a famous place, <laughs> let I, me tell I, you. I didn't tell you enough. <laughs> so please, tell me something about this. This is like a, okay, an well, archive. This wall, okay, this wall is Funk and Soul LPs alphabetical, the first two rows. Then I have three rows of hip-hop, basically mostly hip-hop 12 inches. Um, behind me is all Cuban records, and then Puerto Rico, Latin jazz. Some of my Brazilian records, um, behind you is all Jamaican. That's all Jamaican stuff. Wow. That wall is all jazz back there. Uh, then this wall back here is like fusion, electric jazz, vocals, Colombian music. There's another, this little wall here is blues and gospel. This room has Haitian records, Dominican records, more Brazilian, African. Um, then in the back is Miami bass. How old and, is this uh, collection? It really exponentially exploded uh, around the late 90s, early 2000s, because that's when everybody was just getting rid of a lot of stuff. But I've been collecting records since I was the, like a boy. So records that I bought when I was a boy, I still have them. And wow. then everything else. So, so really, you know, it went from hundreds to thousands during the late 90s, probably. 
you wow. know. So I went from always being a collector, but then CDs were a thing. I liked CDs when they first started coming out because it's like all this stuff that you never could get uh-huh. all of a sudden came out on CD. So it was cool for a minute, but mm. you know, records were a lot cooler. Because then it was like for a dollar you could get like amazing stuff. And what do you know? What you do you do can. with them? Do you really know what what they are? <laughs> where well, they are? Uh, at this point, uh, yeah, I, I kind of could get. I could probably trim the fat a little bit. Like I might not need like so much catalog stuff, but I like having the original object. And right. then, and that's my format. So if somebody called me and they're like, Oh, we want to just a Stevie Wonder set. Well, I could just bring like a crate of Stevie Wonder records and just do that. Nice. So that's kind of nice. It's like having a library and, um, yeah. plus it's my collection. So it reflects my experiences and like where I've been and the places that I've gone and people that I've met and, and like, you know, some records I might remember where I got them or the person that I got them from. Maybe mm. it was another DJ. I have DJs who don't even know that I have their records because <laughs> their record was in the thrift store or whatever, you know, but, um, so it's like kind of, it's like, it's like a thing all is all together. It's like, It has a, you know, it's a different entity. I may have to live off it one day. I might have to sell records to, 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 to get by one day, you know, like, yeah, it's very possible, you know, so, so it, it, it's kind of like, it's like my savings in a way. No, I haven't listened to everything, but if I never bought another record now, I could probably <laughs> just keep delving in and finding things till I'm 80 years old, you know, uh, But that's like, you know, that's, that's great. You know, that's, I'm awesome. good with that, you know. And you have a studio too. Uh, we're going to take some pictures there, right? Okay. Tell me about the studio. I know you are also a producer. That's it. That's my day-to-day -day life now revolves around running the studio out of my house here, which I call City of Progress. Mm -hmm. I bought this house in 2003. So that's where we recorded our first, uh, the white CD, the uh, Contra los Roboticos Mutantes CD that I recorded when I got in this house. If you look at the cover of that CD, it's basically like a drawing of the house. Um, cool drawing, by the way. Yeah, that's Lebo. Those two that. albums or three albums, Lebo did the covers for oh, that. Yeah. And then we had, you, a, tell. you know, he's a buddy of mine. So he was, it was, that was a really nice uh, era of collaboration between mm. us. And, um, you know, so, so once I had the house and I had a space and I, and I started with like just two microphones i didn't have any of this stuff i didn't have like big tape machines i didn't have a console i had nothing just like nothing really literally nothing my first computer and two mics but i had a space and so that's when i started to record here maybe two three years later i had a little tape machine and a little bit better stuff i got for nothing and then i started recording other people and then as the time went forward you know we had been doing so much touring And I felt very frustrated with the touring and like I was doing a little, putting a lot of resources into it. I was still not enjoying that. And, uh, I just started feeling like I wanted to grow this more. Mm -hmm. Plus I'm getting older, you know? So I was like, man, like, what am I going to do? Like when I'm 50, <laughs> which is like now. So I thought, well, okay, like, let me just see, let me start what I could do with this getting more and more into the vintage I said okay I don't see other studios into the vintage I don't see other studios rolling tape I know people want to roll tape and so uh that's where I was moving and you know the musicians that I work with are basically people that want to roll tape they want to use vintage stuff mm -hmm. I'm cheap you know I, I get to like because it's cheap it's like people can afford to come here and like be experimental or make their first recording or transfer their old tape. And it, do you intervene it, in the process? I or? not necessarily, mm. mostly not because mm. most of the artists that come here have their vision and yeah. I don't want to like yeah. impose. I just want to make it sound as good as it can or help them get to the sound that they want. Mm. But sometimes people want a little bit and then, you know, well, yeah, I'll pour my heart into it, but it's either way. I'm just really just trying to like, You just have to make people happy so that they can do their best thing. So if they're not, then that's when things can start to suck. So basically just from the minute that people come in and just like having fun and keep everybody like loose and keep it sounding, it's got to sound good in their headphones. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, hopefully, and then I get to be in there and hear something amazing. You know, that's like, a, it's the biggest thrill. So that's kind of like where my heart is now. And, 
And now I have like a second place at the bridge, which is a studio Northwest seventh Avenue and 42nd street, like just North of the overpass. Mm -hmm. And it's like a space where people have uh, different other artists share the, the studio space. Oh, yeah. It's like satellite studios and then a big library. I've been there. Yeah, so cool. I can use it for, you know, when it's like too many people for here or somebody's allergic or whatever, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that's it, you know? Thank you so much. Alex. Thank you guys, man. It's great. Thanks. <laughs> The artists interviewed in the series Miami Alternativo are part of a vital and fascinating multicultural movement of collaborations among local artists, nonprofits, and cultural institutions that call Miami their home among other cities of the world. They regularly present high-quality interdisciplinary and socially conscious art projects. They are independent artists that are pioneers in the local art scene. They deal with the Cuban culture in their own way, they have contributed systematically to the diversity of the cultural landscape. They have gained increased recognition locally, nationally, and transnationally. Y es así que llegamos al final del tercer episodio de la serie Miami Alternativo, una colaboración de Alafia Creative Entertainment y Artist Nader. Gracias por acompañarnos. Nos despedimos. Hasta la próxima.